0: Leading Corporate Transformation, der Podcast der WHU Otto Beisheim School of Management, powered by PwC, zur Transformation von Unternehmen und ihrer Kultur, von Entscheidern für Entscheider oder von Unternehmern für Unternehmer.
1: Ladies and Gentlemen, welcome to our next Podcast on leading corporate transformation. This podcast is brought to you by the WHU Otto Bysem School of Management and PwC. So, my name is Gori von Hirschhausen, um, and I'm a partner in our consulting practice at PwC, leading our management consulting. And my co host, that you all already know very well, is uh, Professor Zern Oschan. So, Zern, over to you.
0: Thank you, Gori. Um, I would like to welcome everyone to our podcast, too. Um, Is Gori, said, I'm a professor and Endowed Chair of Corporate Transformation at VHU Otto School of Management. And I am thrilled to have the opportunity to discuss corporate transformation with our distinguished guest, Hans-Peter Knebel, today. Thank
1: yeah. you. Great pleasure to welcome our guest for today, who is uh, Professor Dr. Hans-Peter Knebel, who is the CEO of the Röchling Group. It's a 2.5 billion euro plastics engineering company. Um, it is a great pleasure to have you. And uh, I think what is also very interesting is that uh, you uh, maybe one fun fact. We all know that Giesbert Rüeve, uh, uh, is uh, w- was one of our latest speakers, um, the former CEO of Glöckner, and he is actually on the a- advisory board, I think, from Röschling. So absolutely, he, he has a great connect. But c- coming back, or let's turn to uh, Hans Peter, Hans Peter Knebel um, himself. So I think uh, you're a great example, actually, for change. Because um, if, if I get it ri- got it right, you were a very successful surgeon and uh, a medical doctor for more than 12 years before, let's say, you, you started your management career and switched to the dark side of power. <laughs> so, uh, um, Hans-Peter, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what brought you from, from, from uh, medicine to, to, to management and um, maybe also talk a little bit about Röschling.
2: Well, Thank you guys for having me, and uh, thank you also, Serdan, for raising the bar so high uh, about the distinguished guest. so I hope uh, I won't be a disappointment. Well, first of all, you're right, I, it, it has always been my dream to study medicine, and actually it has been, from the age of 16, my dream to be a surgeon. So I followed that process, uh, profession and um, went to medical school, even though my parents were not really favoring that option because I come from a family of entrepreneurs. So medic- medicine was not really a career option in our family. But I was so interested and thrilled by that, so I chose that and I haven't regretted it. But after being more than 12 years in surgery, being a consultant surgeon and a board-certified surgeon for more than six years, I... Um, the opportunity came up uh, to join the medical device industry. And with that opportunity, I've kind of asked myself, well, um, you're now in your late 30s. You've done surgery for more than 12 years. Uh, You've performed somewhat in the neighborhood of over 4,000 procedures. What's next? Is the next uh, that you continue working for 30 years in surgery, or could it be that the professional life obviously offers you an alternative? And I was actually thrilled to to pick up on that alternative because I was always kind of interested in business and the business aspects uh, and the management aspects also during my my hospital career. So I've uh, taken up on that opportunity, went into the medical device industry, and uh, started to build up a clinical research unit there. Became head of marketing very soon afterwards and then uh, the CEO two years into my business career. And uh, so that was an exciting venture
1: and I'm still enjoying it. Great. Now you are the CEO of Röschling. Can you tell us a little bit more about the company?
2: The company Röschling is a very a uh, long-standing company with a DNA full of change and transformation. The company originated in the 1820s, 1822 to be precise. So next year is our 200-year wow. anniversary in the Saar region as a coal trader. Then mm-hmm. steel manufacturing came up. Um, there is uh, now the Volklinger Hütte, which is uh, um, World Cultural Heritage, okay. and um, that is more or less uh, the origin of the organization. Went through steel manufacturing, also arms and industry, defense, and then certainly a phase where a Total mixture of a highly diversified group with all kinds of industries, ranging from coffee machines to stamping machines. And um, so that was also a challenging part because it got so diversified, actually, they kind of lost focus. And around the 2000, they decided to refocus all their activities on a technology they already had at that time in the organization for almost 80 years, which is the plastics manufacturing. So the material technology of plastics was not new to the wrestling Group. It's already been there since the 1920s. And they decided to focus all their activities on that. And now we are a plastics um, Specialist in manufacturing and materials expertise with around 90 affiliations around the world, about two and a half billion euros in annual sales, and uh, just about a little more than 11,000 employees. Um, Very diversified in industry, but very focused on the material of plastics. And what we work uh, on is really industrial plastics so it's not uh, packaging but it's really high performance materials for industrial applications
1: so looking at the actual moment in time how how is business doing for vorrichtling
2: well business is um, actually okay with a few hiccups here and there certainly um, as our business uh, comprises about 55% of our sales in the automotive supplier business, we were hit really hard in 2020. Then we have um, about, um, let's say, 35% of our sales are in wide industrial application that ranges from machine building to industry uh, such as chemical industries and and uh, energy production, all the way down to playground manufacturing uh, and and all these kind of things. And then finally, the smallest part, around five to seven percent of our sales, is the medical business, where we supply medical goods ranging from diagnostics, uh, pharma packaging, all the way to surgery, minimally invasive surgery eye surgery and other things like that. So business right now, that's the reason why I explained that diversity is working well, especially in the industrial applications. It's picking up strongly in the medical space. Uh, However, in 2021, uh, even though we had a, a nice head start into the business in the automotive sector, we are now somewhat slowed down by the shortages of the semiconductors. And that is certainly a challenge that will continue well into 2022. So we're losing some volume there, but and in the automotive sector, haven't reached pre-crisis levels of 2019, but we at least are above the 2020 levels, yeah.
0: Um, you already touched upon the semiconductor shortage. Um, are there other challenges you're facing in a kind of a broad-based? Well, the semiconductors certainly are the biggest challenge at this
2: point of time. And that also uh, is due to the fact that the lead time in the semiconductor manufacturing is about 33 weeks. That means uh, there is no quick turnaround. Aside from that, building up facilities to enhance that manufacturing takes even longer. So that's the reason why we anticipate that challenge will remain well into 2022. The second big challenge certainly is raw material supply. And raw material supply is not um, the same all across every product group, but it is certainly uh, different and changing between the different plastics and resin materials. However, we see some relaxation on that market, not all across the board. The price levels are high, They're very high, however, they are not historically high because we've also been already on that price level sometimes in 2011 or 2012. We see at this point of of time for the raw materials that the prices are now moving a little bit more into a sideways movement. And obviously the market is not ready to pay any price for a resin material. So, yes, um, difficult situation, but I think, manageable situation. Um, how do you respond to these challenges? Well, it's it's difficult on the semiconductor side because here clearly we are totally dependent on whether the automotive OEMs have their factories up and running or whether they shut them down. Even if we're able to supply with our own products that are in need of semiconductors. If the factory is closed, the factory is closed. So that is a challenge that is difficult to overcome. On the raw material side, we certainly have very good contacts to um, the raw material suppliers because we are in the situation that we usually have a very stable demand of high volumes that makes us uh, a pretty good customer Uh, to the raw material suppliers, and that gives us some leverage in negotiating suppliers. And especially in the industrial sector, it's absolutely clear if the prices will will go up, which they presently have done so, we try to pass these price increases to the market. That's uh, part of the business.
1: Maybe taking an even broader view on on the company, and Hans-Peter, you were talking about the development and the transformation of the Röchling Group. Looking at the moment in time, um, what do you say? How does Röchling need to be transformed? How far you are on a transformation? And what role does digitization plays for for your business?
2: Well, first of all, I'm, I, I'm totally convinced and we can see that, that there is a deeply rooted transformational need and industrial transformation going throughout all industries. Not all at the same pace, not all happening at the same time, but... When you see some indicator industries, and certainly automotive is 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 a very uh, prominent example, when you look at the transformation of mobility that causes an entire industry to totally change its face, then you can realize that also other industries have similar challenges. Um, so the biggest importance is that you need to convince your organization, even if you say, well, in our industry, everything's still stable, that um, you need to point out we want to be ahead of the game. And that is the most important thing that I would like to convey is let's be ahead of the game because if you initiate your own transformational activities before you are demanded by that specific industry, it is always easy for you. Second big thing is You need to utilize and revisit, utilize the tools and revisit your internal processes. And that probably is one of the biggest challenges because we are human beings, we are used to our habits, and those habits are wonderful because they have been so successful for us in the past. So stopping certain things, changing tracks, changing processes reviving uh, your activities and sometimes throwing stuff overboard is a challenge that is not easy for every human being. And, and, and you know if we look ourselves on a private life that is always an issue for us also privately. So that is the second big message I want to convey is really go in there and revisit all your activities, revisit your processes and slim down wherever possible. And the third big topic is really that be as brave to think about structural consequences. Meaning when you are trying to be ahead of the game, when you are trying to revisit your processes and potentially also uh, restructure your processes, continue to really think on whether it has structural implications, and it usually does. That means you have to reorganize, yeah? and the easiest thing to, to explain is always look at roles and responsibilities. Yeah? Who is doing what, yeah? for what reason, with what output, and, and then be also brave, third message, to really revisit your organization and be brave enough to also restructure.
1: Looking at the role of the CEO for such a transformation, what would you say? What's the role of the CEO? Well, first of all, he
2: has to be an excellent golf player, and um, (laughs) he has to be... No, I'm joking, certainly you know. I mean, I really believe um, you have to really balance your activities between the helicopter view, you know, the 30,000 feet perspective, and wherever needed, really dive deep into the activities and show that you are there right with them when the people when the change is happening. Yep. So so that combination to me is really the biggest effort and CEO has to undertake. You always have to see the bigger picture but whenever you see a little bushfire somewhere you have to dive down and help putting the fires out and try to support the organization. And, and and that is, to me, also a challenge because you have to find the balance between constant micromanagement and being so far away from the real business that you lose touch. And And I think that is th- what the CEO really needs to do, to be able to really vary, to alternate between those different levels of view and management and also
1: interaction with the organization. So we need a telescope to look ahead and we need a microscope to understand really the, 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 the situation and, and the circumstances. And
2: I, I'd like to come back to my surgical career. It's first a diagnosis, then the therapy. So yeah. it's, it's, okay. it's really understanding what is the problem and then trying to come up with the solutions. But you can only come up with the right solutions where you really know where the potential endpoint is of your therapy to stay in that picture really is. So what do I want to reach? Where do I want to be? Yeah, There is a who am I as an organization, but also where do I want to be? And and that constant change, as you described rightly nicely with, uh, with those words telescoping and zooming in, it is really you need to always have a bigger picture and that bigger picture shall set, more or less the guiding light, the north star to Mm -hmm. the organization, but then there are uh, little steps you have to take to be able to reach that north star.
0: Um, I I want to pick on an interesting point you raised, namely revisiting all the processes and probably as frequently as possible. Um, how do you relate to innovation from that point of view? You are an engineering company at the end of the day. Innovation must be very central to you. Um, could you talk a little bit about how innovation, the nature of it, is changing, how it's driving the transformation in, in your context? Let me let me try to
2: describe the viewpoint of innovation, and and let me let me try to be very drastic. And it's life is not that drastic, but there's this one viewpoint where you more or less put all your engineers in the ivory tower and they're all very brilliant and they come up with a great product. And once the product is totally finished, and usually it's a 120% solution for for German engineers. It's never never lacking any specifications. There's a lot of specifications to the product solutions. But anyways, you come up with that 120% uh, product and then you start looking if there is a customer out there. And the other perspective, and I'm you know really polarizing, but the other perspective is you're trying really to get in touch with the value stream of your customer, trying to understand what is happening out there with your customer and how you can potentially contribute to make that value stream uh, really perform much better. And then you have a, a totally different view because you now come from a customer-centric perspective and you try to find solution, solutions applying your engineering skills. And in between these polarized worlds, you have to find your way. And I clearly say the world is absolutely shifting to a customer-centric perspective. And yet, it's not only because let's go back to our very famous example of the iPhone in 2007 n- before the iPhone was launched nobody would have ever thought that we would need something like that and today you cannot live without it I mean if you if you forget your iPhone or your smartphone let's be neutral at home I mean this is almost like somebody ripped your heart out Yeah, it's terrible so, so it is a balance between Setting the standards in a completely disruptive new way, on the other hand, but also understanding very much what the customer, and maybe not the customer itself, but really the process around the customer really needs and how you can support and
1: make life easier. So is that the ultimate goal of the transformation to become a company that can give innovation from what is possible? It's one end and the other end to understand and be excessive about understanding the customers' needs?
2: Yeah, and I'd like to add maybe one level of complexity too, because um, you need you need to understand that the individual customer uh, opinion, will not lead you into the right direction. But it's really about understanding the process and the value stream. And then there's a second level of, of more or less trying to understand what's happening out there by always uh, revisiting the global mega trends in industry where you say, this is the value cha- chain, this is the value stream of the customer. These are the potential needs and how are they potentially amplified or maybe not even supported at all by the global megatrends out there. And we spoke to it digitization is absolutely one of these global megatrends. It is across, it's not a single industry, it's just across all aspects of our life, personally and in business.
0: So, um, what is next? What is the next big thing for Reschling? And more importantly, how do you identify growth opportunities in the market?
2: Well, Let's say the next big thing, and I'm not saying this in in the light of what we've recently experienced with the big floodings in Germany and and all the discussions around climate, the next big thing really is to deeply integrate the ESG topic and sustainability in specific into our uh, business model. We are working in the plastics industry. We are high-performance material specialists. We are not into packaging, so ocean litter is not really our problem. On the other hand, it is a global problem and it is part of our problems we need to solve and we are in that plastic business. So let's try to find solutions. And the solutions could be for us in many different aspects. So our sustainability strategy has more or less four focus areas. That is certainly the people within our organization and the people also that we are serving with our products people's behavior and things like that. That is certainly the places in which we work. Certainly we are looking energy consumption, energy efficiency, CO2 footprint of facilities and things like that. And then we certainly have the partnerships. We are a supplier, but there is something downstream that's the resin suppliers, and there's something upstream that's more or less the OEMs. And we have to take a look at the entire value chain with all our partners. And finally, and I'm safe that coincidentally for last, it's the products. And the products, it's absolutely clear. I mean, we as a plastic manufacturing industry, we are only responsible for 4% of the oil consumption globally. So it's more or less neglectable. But then the question comes up, what could be the alternative? And the alternative is something where you try to find sustainable solutions with your materials. One could be biopolymers, so polymers from natural grown resources. Secondly, could be biodegradable polymers, so they could be also carbon based, at least to a certain percentage, but they need to be degradable out there in nature. Third option is recycled. Polymers, meaning that post-industrial, whatever comes from our, our own manufacturing as recycling waste or maybe from the customer. And then the, thir- the fourth one and the most complex one is certainly post-consumer recycling. And that is a huge challenge because there's also very complex logistics behind that to get these products from the consumer back into an industrial facility that can really rework and come up with product solutions. So that's more or less the complexity that we try to address. But yes, sustainability is the mega topic we are
1: addressing as a plastics company. Super interesting. So maybe (laughs) now it gets a little bit more boring, actually. (laughs) As you know, I have a finance background, so I'm always very interested. I won't hold that against you. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Thanks for that. So um, my question is around... um, how does the finance function actually contributes to your transformation, to the way how you run the business, to all these, let's say, thoughts about how to 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 uh, have also the sustainability in the way how you do business. So wh- what would you say? What's the contribution of this, the best contribution of the CFO and the finance function?
2: Well, Gore, you've heard this from me before, but <laughs> I'm going to repeat it now. I mean, it's, it's really looking at our finance function and the reporting and everything that goes along with it, I'm completely uh, opposing any history lessons. you looking back, you know, in the rearview mirror, trying to understand the past. And that is a situation maybe you have to do so rightfully so. But I think you can only do so if you can take conclusions and draw conclusions for the future. Mm-hmm. So what's actually interesting in my perspective as a CEO is what's happening out there? What's gonna be next for me? What is the challenges that I will be facing? And that's where I really need my CFO to be. He needs to really have his his ear to the rails and really tell me what's coming, you know, yeah. and, and, and then trying to understand the world. Uh, behind it. So I'm really favoring very much the situation of having the right digital tools in place to really have a situation of real-time accounting, knowing what happens when it happens, not with a rear-view mirror that is more or less more than a, two weeks and longer behind, And then also using that in real-time forecasting. And the forecasting, and now digital really comes into play with machine learning, the forecasting certainly also uses uh, intelligence that you generate out of the data that's out there. And that could be a newspaper headline, that could be a geopolitical situation. But then you try to predict what influences you have to deal with in the very near future. And I give you one example. Um, the, the electronic Bible of the automotive industry is the EDI tool, the electronic data interface tool where the, 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 the automotive OEMs puts their, uh, their, their volume demands in. So you know exactly what happens in the next three months. Now, we found out that since one and a half years, this EDI tool is always completely off. It's completely off. Because in the first phase of the corona pandemic, the EDI tool was still uh, promising you a growth on uh, year over year of 5% or 7% while the factory was still clo- already closed. Wow. So so now you you're losing a sense of predicting your capacity utilization. And we have to find different ways. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm just pointing that out because a headline from CNN or NTV could be highly relevant on the development of the pandemic uh, with effects on my capacity utilization and for my necessity to either provide or even not to provide any capacity for a certain customer. So, it's really about predicting um, what's really going to happen within the next three to six months. And uh, therefore, I need that real time accounting in real time forecasting.
1: So I'm pretty sure that Evelyn Thoma is listening. (laughs) So my question is, are are you (laughs) supporting her her request for investment? Because I'm pretty sure this also brings some some project work for her. So there is some some things to do there. There is uh, technology to be changed, maybe. Can you give us uh, your point of view on this? Well, first of all, Evgeny Tomi is a great CFO. That that's I really for sure. to,
2: uh, That I really need to say. Yeah. And secondly, um, I'm, I'm actually, I need to say, happy to see that she is not potentially delaying investments out of financial considerations, yeah. but rather out of personal capacity constraints. Mm-hmm. Meaning that, do we have enough people and people qualified to lead that transformation at the speed it could be potentially necessary? Yeah. So, and I think that's the important trade: is 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 not have a short-sighted financial perspective on investments. And I'm not, you know, I'm not advocating the fact that yeah. managing investments is short-sighted. But, but the fact is, when you make deliberate decisions, rather look um, that the money is there. And then try to figure out to get the other resources, people, know-how, quality behind that. So that's to me much more important. If that is constrained, we can work on that and we have to work on that. But that's not usually a quick and easy fix because people need to know your systems and you can only work with so and so much external support because there needs to be a blend of external input and internal know-how
1: maybe following up on the on the technology piece of this uh, so you hired a chief digital and information officer uh, it's it's Klaus Peter Fett who who comes from he came from Google if if i, uh, I take it correctly um, so what was the reason to have somebody like him for this job
2: well first of all klaus peter fett is a great guy and yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he's just a fun person to work with but secondly he has an incredible background of working for different um important players in the um, IT and the digital space, uh, like IBM, he yep. worked for Mercury, he worked for uh, Google, and he's, he's got really a scope of a competence in the IT infrastructure as well as in the digital space. And I need to admit I was somewhat reluctant in the beginning to give him that dual responsibility because I always felt maybe if he has got if he has both responsibilities you know one is a little bit overshadowing and distracting his attention from the other but I was now really I'm a true believer that this is a great selection if you have the the, the capabilities within that same person the combination of the two is really great because what we don't have at all is the friction between the IT guy and between the digital guy. Yeah? That they sometimes fight over resources, that they sometimes fight over what comes first and what is really needed, but he is really blending both of these functions nicely. And at the end of the day, we really need to say Klaus-Peter built a great team around him, mm-hmm. and that's the reason why that whole thing works really well.
0: Um, I would like to <coughs> focus on corporate governance for a second, and especially within the context of family businesses. Uh, Röschling is a prominent example uh, of a family business in Germany, almost 200 years old, as you said. Um, what are the advantages of driving transformation in a family business?
2: Well, first of all, I'm a huge fan of family businesses, uh, I really need to say, because I, I, I think they have just a, u- a unique Uh, positioning in the market and also you have a unique uh, value proposition to the customers but also to the employees secondly and that is somehow maybe a little bit in contrary to your statement is don't underestimate that also a family has justified financial interests and they're really justified because, because they are investors just like anybody else but thirdly when you address the right topics, if you are on track with the right things that you want to deal with and try to um, transform and develop uh, the organization and bring it to a higher maturity level, then a family is more likely to be more patient than maybe publicly listed companies. So it's all about convincing of Um, the journey you are undertaking and when you have um, a convincing story to tell and maybe also when you are a good captain, then the family is uh, very determined to set sail with you. And I think that's a very, very important issue about family-owned businesses and also a very unique unique situation uh, for the Germany uh, family-owned businesses because that is very unique
1: compared to other markets in the world. So if we, we try to bring this all together, I mean, uh, there are some lessons learned from what you were saying, Hans-Peter. So the first thing is, uh, and we learned it with, uh, um, with Evelyn Thurmer and uh, with Mr. Fett, so th- great people, you need good people, you need uh, in, the, in the right positions, you need the right people, right? So that's the one takeaway. The, the other was we had this picture of the telescope and the microscope. So you take as a CEO for the transformation the view what what comes next and and you were describing how ESG is playing here into into the game and and what the role of ESG will be in the future and how much it is as you said fully incorporated in your let's say uh, way of doing business right it's it's your way of operating that will change that um, that's that's the other aspect and. Um, The microscope is that, as you said, um, of course, you need to have the big picture. You follow your strategy. But if then something comes up that needs your attention right now, you need to be um, available. You need to be there. You need to help out and and, and, uh, also go into the so badly called micromanagement in in the moment, right? Well, first of all, the, the first
2: point is really so dearly important to me. And my favorite sentence is Good people have good people. Okay, if you if you want to assess leadership qualities, look if that leader has a good team, and then you rightly know from the very beginning that um, if, if if the team's great, the leader also cannot be bad, and 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 honestly i'm extremely proud um, to say that i have a team now around me after 4 years at wrestling that can step in any day yeah if i wouldn't be there they can step in any day and they can take over and and i think that's what leadership is also about is that you create teams and a team energy that can keep up the business because it's never about the individual even though i Tempted to say that the CEO is not so unimportant, but still, it's not always about an individual. It's always about the performance of the organization. So, once again, good people have good people. And the second topic is, and here I'm, I'm absolutely uh, with you, and um, therefore I don't. Micromanagement is a situation where the CEO wants to get involved in every single detail at all the time. Mm. Now, the question is, do we have a clear sense of urgency when there is a demand for support. And then the CEO shall not be afraid to get there to the problem with his colleagues, roll up the sleeves and admit that I don't know it right off the bat, but let's try to figure it out. And here I think that's when management is necessary in a situation where there is a clear demand. Um, Let's take the example of the corona pandemic. We have and still are having weekly calls on updating our situation with the entire environment that's been continuously demanded. And I want to go into all the details, but we've had a task force meeting every Monday 10.30. I attend that meeting every Monday, 10.30. Because I really believe this is a situation, a historical crisis in the industry. You just have to be there. You have to feel the pulse. You don't have to give an input every week, but you just know what's going on and then also give some directions and set some impulses. So, once again, micromanagement, if, you, if you're overdoing it, on the second hand is realizing that there is an issue and really getting there.
1: So, i um, <laughs> Looking at your management style, what I just learned is that sometimes you need, as a CEO, to take the tough decisions, to look abroad, to look ahead, uh, but at the same time be a good team player when it comes to, to crisis situation and be kind of a more primus inter pares in that case. How do you describe, it looking at yourself, how do you describe your leadership style in, in that way? Well,
2: I, I really do love participation.
1: I believe a participative
2: uh, leadership style is very important because you just have to hear out all the competences that you have in the organization and they're incredible. Uh, secondly, I certainly do hope that I bring some competencies to the table too. But on the other hand, I cannot have all that within myself and nobody can that the team has to offer. So really hear them out, involve them and and and, and see what impulses they can give. Secondly, it's, it's also about um, consequence. And consequence um, is important because at the end of the day, it, it's not like in basic democracy where everybody can do what everybody wants and everybody gets his and her will, but you, you have to hear everybody out, but then you come to a conclusion and finally you, most likely also as a CEO, you have to take the decision. And you take the decision and then the decision is set. And the people are usually satisfied because they understand it's been a process of understanding different viewpoints and arriving at a decision. And and the third aspect that is truly important to me is humbleness. And it's because it's about you in a role. It's not about you as a person. And you need to understand that you try to fulfill a role to the best possible level and that's what I'm doing every day 24 hours a day sometimes more um, you really try to fulfill that role in the best possible level but it's not about me as a single person yeah. and, and and that humbleness always needs to be present because if that is not present you kind of lose your head over things and then um, you're a little bit confused with your own fame and that's, that's not good for a CEO
0: um is there anything where you feel like you could have done better? Oh, you want you want me to list
2: them all? <laughs> 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 no, seriously, I mean, if you don't reflect yourself and your actions self-critically, um, you're in the wrong position. And secondly, if you have never made a mistake, you've been not been brave enough. So yes, there are a lot of things on reflection. Um, I, I I would have done differently, but I don't regret anything. Why I don't I regret anything? Because at the point of my decision, I was making that decision on the best possible level of know-how, and then I made that decision. So I'm always saying the best possible scenario is you make only right decisions, never have to change anything, and life is great. The second best solution is you make a lot of decisions, most of them are right, but the ones that are wrong you go back upon once you realize it and you change them and you revise them and you change them and the worst scenario is whenever a decision is being taken because then the entire organization is stalling and subsequently failing so therefore I opt for option two mostly yeah, because nobody can say that uh, only right decisions uh, are in your textbook
0: Is it something you develop out of your medical training? Honestly I think it, ha-
2: it plays a big part of it because if you want to do surgery, and my specialty was surgical oncology, where you have big tumor procedures. If you want to do that responsibly, you always have to. Ref- if in, in something doesn't go the way as desired, you always have to go back on yourself and ask yourself: Did I do the right things? Did I really did I de- take the right care? Was I was I really diligent enough? Was was it was it the right procedure that we've selected? And, you know, the good thing is the patient is, as the word says, patient. Yeah, Because you can go back and explain and let him know and then support him to get back on track on the course of where you wanted uh, on the therapeutic success. But if you don't do that, everything's doomed. The patient and your surgical career. So um, if you want to be a successful surgeon, you always have to revisit your, your decisions.
0: Okay, um, so then our last question. Do you have a book recommendation for our listeners? Oh, um, that that really
2: catches me off guard. But let me give you two recommendations because I'm a huge fan of historical um, uh, lectures. So I can follow this one example, but there are other great historical uh, um, uh, books out there. And I recommend every now and then to read historical books because even if they're uh, written fiction-wise, it's still important to learn about the past because a German philosopher, Otto Marquardt, said, uh, Zukunft braucht Herkunft, the future needs the past. So that's very important. And and the second book, and that just um, spontaneously comes to my mind, is from the former editor of... The Fortune magazine, Geoff Colvin, and he wrote a book that says talent is overrated. And I love the title because it clearly says what I always think. You need talent, but if you don't work on your talents, if you don't work hard to improve your talents, your talent isn't worth anything. So it's not only about, oh, he's so talented. No, you also got to be a hard worker. Uh, that accounts for she also, I might add. yeah. So she also has to be a hard worker. but But that is so important. Talent is a gift that's been given to you. But if you don't cherish that gift, if you don't work on that gift, the gift fades away. And therefore, I think the book is important to read to understand
1: the humbleness of people that are needed in management. But maybe... Th- it's interesting and that's a, a perfect summary of our today talk because if you say you treat talent like business and it needs to transform on an ongoing basis you have to further develop you have to put more effort into it try to make it different make it better every day i mean this is corporate transformation it is
2: corporate transformation and that's another topic for your next podcast it's <laughs> lifelong learning yeah <laughs> And lifelong learning and organization learning are huge topics for you as an individual, for you as a manager, for you as a CEO. But also, um, it's it's a huge topic uh, that we need to cover within an entire population. Population meaning the company with all the people in it, or even a population of a country. Yeah, and w- if we don't learn out of our crises. But Corona is once again a good example there, there, there's nothing we can take away. The takeaways come from organizational or from lifelong learning.
1: So Hans-Peter, thank you so much for, for all your insights and, and all the words of wisdom, actually, uh, that we got on on how to perform corporate transformation. And when it comes to the lifelong learning session, Hans-Peter, uh, I would like to invite you again to talk about this topic. Thank you so much. You mean as a listener to learn from that? <laughs> <laughs> no, to give further advice. <laughs> yeah, <right>. Thanks, Hans-Peter. <laughs> Thanks Thank, for you. It. Thanks for it. Thank you. It's been
0: fun. Thank you. Joining us. Das war Leading Corporate Transformation. Ein Podcast der WHU Otto Beisheim School of Management. Powered by PwC. Redaktion PwC: Britta Bormuth und Marvin Rothmann. Produziert in den ChemWeb Digital Studios.